Well, turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to continue our series through the book of Romans, and this is actually our fourth week in Romans uh, chapter 8, so just chapter 8 alone. And if you missed last week, uh, Pastor Adam did just a beautiful job explaining predestination, election from the text of Scripture. So if you missed that, just would encourage you to go back and either listen to that or watch that uh, online. And you know, as straightforward as the doctrine of predestination is, election is, in the Bible, it's, it's everywhere uh, we turn, we, we recognize that it's not easy to fully digest. So there's none of us here that feels like, oh, I've got this thing totally figured out and, and, and you know, my mind totally around it. We know that's not the case. Um, it's difficult, and it raises a lot of questions. And if you're wrestling with the doctrine, that's okay. I mean, that's okay. In fact, that's good. It's better to wrestle with the things of God uh, than to just quickly discard them as sort of beyond something that I can understand. Um, here we are two days away from the 506-year anniversary of the uh, one of the most important events in church history. It was October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther, the uh, German priest and theologian, would uh, tack on the castle door at Wittenberg the 95 Theses that would launch what we uh, now call the Protestant Reformation. That was October 31st, so it's two days away. It's not as glamorous of a celebration on the 506-year anniversary as it was in 2017 on the 500-year anniversary, but still, it certainly uh, changed the trajectory of the Christian church um, for us, and it's something that we, we recognize and, and celebrate, of course. Uh, at that time, Luther fearlessly and brazenly took on the Roman Catholic Church, and in particular, the Dominican uh, priest, Johann Tetzel, over the sale of indulgences. And what was going on is the, the Catholic Church was selling forgiveness, so to speak, as a way to uh, finance a, a new building campaign. And Martin Luther came along and said loudly and angrily, this is wrong. This should not be happening. God's forgiveness cannot be bought, purchased with money. Uh, he was bold and, and brazen, as I mentioned, and, and even fearless to some degree. But he wasn't always that way. Certainly wasn't all day, always that way. In fact, in 1505, when Luther was just 21 years old, he lived in constant fear, actually. Decided to become a monk because he knew that his life was not pleasing to God, and he thought, if I just become a monk, then that'll go a long way to sort of endearing uh, me to God, and so put away all worldly pleasures and committed to a life of self-denial and went through all those things. And as far as uh, monks go... I mean, he was the A-plus variety. He was absolutely fully committed. He was 100% in everything that he was in, and he took it, again, uh, took it uh, with great seriousness. And yet, even though he was all, uh, you know, all in and committed to self-denial, he still continued to wrestle with a guilty conscience. And he still continued to live a life of fear. He feared death. He feared God's judgment. Uh, he feared uh, hell. And he constantly worried about whether God could truly love him, given the way his thoughts would go, given the way the things he would say with his words, given uh, the way that he would act. He wondered, could God truly love him? Every time he sinned, he thought, this has to be the last strike for me. 
I don't know if you've ever thought that. I think, you know, we all on some level have wondered, maybe after falling into temptation again or or another major sin or maybe some sort of secret uh, sin, I think all of us have felt at some point, you know, could God really still love me after that? I mean, I know that I've pledged to God how many times I won't do this again. I've asked God for forgiveness over and over, and that there I go again. Could God still love me after that? I know a guy, a former pastor, who left his wife and kids for another woman, a co-worker, um, and then they ended up getting married, and then he, he left that woman as well. And he reached out to me on Facebook, and he asked me, in essence, is there any way... Is there any way that God could still love me? How could God love someone like me? Even the Puritans who were known for their piety and their upright lives would often ask, how could God love someone so corrupt as I am? Well, this morning we're going to talk about God's love right from the text of Scripture, and we're going to see three evidences of God's love. And I I put in my notes three very surprising evidences. I don't think the first one actually is going to surprise us because you've been part of the Christian church or been part of Capshaw for a while, you're not going to be surprised with the first one. But I think that the, the second and the third may actually surprise you when we look at the evidences of God's love. So uh, Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're going to cover verses 31 through 39. Let me start by reading verses 31 through 34. Here reads the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So I want to pause there because Paul, you know, he's used a lot of rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is, is one that, you know, a, a verbal answer is not necessarily anticipated. And here he has another one. He says, what shall we say to these things? Well, of course, that then prompts us to ask, what are these things? What's he talking about? He could be talking about everything he said up to this point in the book of Romans, the letter uh, to the church at Rome. But I think more specifically, he's talking about what he's just said in the previous sentences, namely that it's God who saves. Salvation is totally of the Lord. It's God who chooses those whom he will save. It's God who justifies. It's God who adopts people into his family. And it's God who will make sure that his children are glorified, that they will not see eternal death, but will be reunited with him. And Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? That salvation of the Lord and his answer is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, keep in mind, more than anyone else in this room, the apostle Paul knew something about having people against him. So, you know, every, virtually everywhere he went, there were people, because of this message, here he is, a former religious leader, and now he's proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Because of his message, there were people who tried to seize him, and sometimes did. Uh, they tried to arrest him, and sometimes did. Uh, beat him, stone him, imprison him. They really wanted him dead. So, 
If anybody knew this idea, this reality that we will have enemies, we will have people against us, it was certainly uh, the Apostle Paul. He knew it theologically, but he also knew it experientially that we will have people who will rail against us. He's not saying that if you're a Christian, you'll never have anybody against you. That's not what he means by this question. He's not saying if you're a Christian, you'll never have any enemies. Paul knew better. What he's saying is, if God is for us, that is to say, since God has chosen us, since God has justified us, since God has adopted us, since God has promised to glorify us, it doesn't really matter who's against us. They cannot be victorious against us, ultimately, regardless of how strong or powerful they are. You may have someone in your life who is just against you. And, and maybe, maybe they're not vocally or verbally against you, but you know that it's just very clear to you that they want you to fail. They're rooting against you. Um, you, you may have someone who, uh, and you can tell just by the exchanges that, that they don't want what's best for you, and you wonder, what are they really saying about me when I'm not around? A number of years ago, I was the senior pastor of a different church in a different part of the country, and I had this guy on staff who was just against me. And he had been, when I started there, he'd already been there seven or eight years. And, um, and he just, he had a very different philosophy of ministry than I did. Um, I, I brought in and sort of cast his vision for a disciple making ministry where discipleship was key. And his philosophy of ministry was very much about events. It was very event driven. He wanted us to have uh, the biggest and best choir in the whole state and, and, and have all these major events that people would come to. And he very subtly was trying to undermine, you know, my leadership. And I knew after a number of exchanges and about a year and a half, I knew like something's got to give here. This is, this is not going to work because he was, he was vocal and he was, you know, constantly asking questions like, yeah, but I don't know if that's really going to work. And, I, and I'm all for, you know, being challenged and having questions asked and so on. But I could tell this guy was just on a completely different page and really in a different book entirely. Uh, and I knew that it, he, ultimately he had to go. But there was one major problem. He was one of these guys that uh, he's kind of always in the weeds, so to speak. In other words, um, you know, slept in and missed meetings half the time, didn't show up for work because, you know, just couldn't get out of bed, was very often ill-prepared. And so people felt very sorry for him because his life, and he was in his early 40s, but he lived like he was, I don't know, 14 or 15. And so, um, and I thought, Lord, what am I going to do? Like this guy, this guy, he's not working, but I know if I move this guy on, which I was willing to do, but I knew things would not go well. So I just started praying. God, I don't know what to do about this person. I, I know he's un, trying to undermine. He has a very different philosophy of ministry. And then one day he said, hey, can I meet with you uh, tomorrow morning in your office? I said, sure. So sat down across from my office, and when, I, when he came in, he had a piece of paper, well, it wasn't, it was blank on one side. He put it down, I had a coffee table in my office, put it down on the coffee table, you know, face down. He said, he said, I don't know how to tell you this. I really, really hate to tell you this, but God's moving me to another place in the country. I mean, and I, I, I had never been so excited in my life, but I, <laughs> but I had to sort of feign this, you know, oh, are you, you know, really? Like, okay, well, if that's what the Lord's telling you to do. Um, but the Lord just kind of moved him on in a real act of kindness. And sometimes the Lord does that, but sometimes the Lord doesn't. 
Sometimes God moves people on and sometimes he doesn't. This is not a promise that God will eliminate enemies from our life. Um, again, although he might. This is a promise though that, that an enemy will not have ultimate victory against you. The enemy will not be able to hijack your joy, steal your salvation as we're going to see, or even make an accusation against you that will ultimately prevail in the end. So in answering the question, how can we know that God will deliver us, Paul says, since God gave up his own son for us, can we not trust that he will give us everything else we need? Now, what does it mean that he gave up his own son? Well, Paul means that the father sent the son for the purpose of dying so that the son would be raised from the dead and glorified and so that you and I could have complete and total forgiveness of our sins. Someone asked me recently this question, could God have pardoned sin without Christ's sacrifice? And this is how you know, by the way, that you're in a very thinking and a theologically deep church when someone asked that. Could God have pardoned sin without Christ's sacrifice? Of course, the answer is no. He couldn't have. The writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So I mean, to us in our you know, therapeutic culture, this seems outrageous. Why does there have to be blood involved? I mean, why is that necessary? Why can't the offended party just say, it's all good, you're okay, and I'm okay, and look, you're forgiven? Surely if anybody should say that, I mean, shouldn't it be the Lord? Shouldn't the Lord just say, look, no, no worries here, it's all good. Why doesn't God just say we're forgiven and spare the life of his son? The reason is that someone had to pay the moral debt that we have incurred against a holy God. Now, this is, a, this is a, an imperfect example for sure or illustration, but if someone holds up a gas station and steals $3,000, somebody has to pay for that loss. Either the culprit is apprehended and, and then makes restitution by repaying the $3,000 or, the, restaurant, or the, uh, the gas station owner then has to take the debt on himself. But either way, somebody has to pay. We are creatures made in the image of God. We were created by a holy God to live lives that are obedient and honoring to our creator, one that brings him glory and pleasure and as those who are created by God, we actually owe that to God. I mean, he made us, so we owe that to him. But as Romans has shown us repeatedly, we have fallen incredibly short of that standard that God is holding us to. We've fallen incredibly short of a perfect life, incredibly short of total and complete and perpetual obedience. Even the best things we do are staying with sinful and self selfish motives. And this is what makes the gospel so counterintuitive. This is what makes it so radical, such foolishness to the, quote, wise of this world. God himself pays the debt that we owe by sending his own son as our sacrifice. That's what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says that God gave him up for us all. God sent his son so that all who believe on him would be forgiven and receive eternal life. And Paul says, if God is so generous as to do that, as to give up his only son for us, how can we not believe that he'll give us everything we could possibly need? One theologian writes, so great is this gift, the giving up of his own son. So marvelous are its implications. So far-reaching its consequences 
that all graces of lesser proportion are certain of free bestowment. In other words, if God has given us this, if God did not spare his own son, then every other thing is little, and we can trust that he'll provide. Here's our first point. Our Father will not deny us anything we need. The proof of that is the gift he's already given. Let's say you're in a relationship and it's gotten a bit rocky and you've been tested in that relationship and you're starting to wonder, I don't know, will this person stay with me for the long haul? In other words, is this friendship really going to last? I mean, we've really been through it lately. I wonder if they will stay with me. I wonder if they will remain my friend. I wonder if they'll keep hold of me, so to speak, if I let them down. Paul says, the best way to answer that question is to look at their track record. What have they done already? And as it relates to God, Paul says, if we want to know what God will do for us in the future, we look at his track record, what he's done already. And what he's done already is he's given us his son, sent his son to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven. Now look at verses 33 and 34 again. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So God's elect, verse 33, are those that God predestined according to his purpose, verse 28, and foreknew, verse 29, Again, another reference to God's predestination or election. And what Paul says uh, by the question is, no one dare bring a charge against God's elect because one, God's the one who justifies, and two, Christ's death has already covered that person's sins. Now, it's important to point out that this does not mean that a Christian cannot confront another Christian about sin. So Paul's not saying, in fact, you know, we see in several other of Paul's letters that this is, this is actually necessary. So Paul's not saying when he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? He's not saying as those of the believing community, as other Christians, we can never charge, you know, brings a, a sin to someone else's attention. We can never say to someone, well, I believe you wronged me when you did that, or I believe you sinned. He's not saying that we cannot do that. That's not uh, what he's getting here. The charges that Paul's talking about are legal charges. What he's saying is, he's talking about one person saying to another person, you don't belong in Christ's kingdom because I know I've seen the way you used to live. Or you've done so many things in your life, like you're, you're not worthy of being part of God's community. Or you've not been a good enough person or your faith is just not sincere enough. That's what Paul's talking about. We can't say that. God's the one who justifies, Paul says, and it doesn't matter what someone else's evaluation of you is. New Testament scholar Frank Thielman writes, God's people need to fear neither the final day of judgment nor the accusations of their detractors in the present. God has accepted them and put them right with himself. His decision in their favor is final and trumps any other negative judgment against them. So without a doubt, I mean, people, people are going to criticize us. And people may criticize you and they may say, how can you be a Christian and still parent the way you parent? How can you be a Christian and still live the way you live? 
Or how can you be a Christian and fall into the same temptation over and over? How can you be a Christian and fall into addiction again? Well, that's okay. Because God says, they're not the ones who are going to judge us. God is the one who will judge, and God's judgment of you has already been pronounced. You are not guilty on all charges because of Christ's obedience on your behalf. So what should we say when someone confronts us? You're getting very practical here. What should we say when someone does bring us into our attention? Well, I think, what if someone says to us, I, I, just, I don't see any spiritual fruit in your life? Or what if someone says, I believe that when you did that, you were sinning? Well, I think we start in terms of responding by seriously considering what the other person is saying to us. We begin with a, a sense of self-suspicion, recognizing, you know what? They may actually be right. I may have a blind spot here. I need to very seriously consider what's being brought to my attention. I don't want to flippantly dismiss it. I don't want to completely disregard it. I want to spend some time prayerfully considering what's been brought to me. Asking God to search our hearts in these matters is always a good thing. But I think, you know, learn from your critics, even your enemies, but never let a critic either set the agenda for your life or cause you to doubt God's love for you. Your salvation is secure because Christ died for you and was raised for you, Paul says. Your sin debt was paid when you trusted in Jesus. Your account settled. Christ's righteousness was credited to you and that's how God sees you. And because that's so hard for us to believe, at least on a day-by-day -day basis, especially when we sin, Jesus is right now, verse 34, interceding for us for those who are in Christ. He has conquered sin and death and hell. He has taken the seat of victory at the right hand of the Father where he reminds us of the Father's love and appeals to the Father. That's one that I died for. Her sins have been dealt with. Now, of course, it's not as though the Father ever forgets that our sins have been dealt with. This is just a reminder that Jesus is always interceding for us. We might say Jesus has his attention fixed on you. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? Jesus has his attention fixed on you. John Murray, great uh, biblical scholar, writes, nothing serves to verify the intimacy and constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of his people. Nothing assures us of his unchanging love more than the tenderness which his heavenly priesthood bespeaks. Let me say it this way in a little more contemporary language. Here's our second point. The son's love for us is indisputably evident in his prayerful preoccupation with our good. If you are in Christ, this is amazing. This is amazing. If you are in Christ, Jesus is preoccupied with your good. Not, not making sure you get every, you know, the nicest car, the nicest house, and have the greatest health and whatever. He's preoccupied with your spiritual success, so to speak. He's preoccupied with seeing it, making sure that you are, you are preserved until the end. Now, it doesn't even sound right when we say it that way, does it? For us to be preoccupied with something is a bad thing, right? My kids were little, they were preoccupied with ice cream. 
And so if I, would, if I even mentioned to them in passing that we might, that there was a small, a small slim possibility we might get ice cream that night, um, that's all they can, they looked at it as an ironclad promise. And if we didn't, they said, but you promised. I said, no, I just kind of casually mentioned it. I learned not to do that later on in life. Can't even bring the subject up. But to be preoccupied, you know, it, we think of it in, in a bad way. Janine tells me sometimes that I'm preoccupied with certain things. Uh, every year at th- this time in late October, I think of this, this classic scene in the, uh, the Academy Award winning movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And now I saw the movie uh, on TBS. So I saw the, the, uh, you know, the edited version. It's rated R. I'm sure there's some bad things in it. But I recorded it on a VHS tape. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And I, I would watch, I've probably, probably seen the movie, I don't know, 30 times. I, I never would have thought this when I watched it, but I mean, it's just such a beautiful example of sort of this law grace distinction. Again, as a teenager, I'm, I'm not thinking that, but, uh, but there's this one scene. And so Randall McMurphy is played by Jack Nicholson. And he's been committed to this mental institution. You know, I, I guess they used to say a sane asylum, insane asylum. So he's in this, and he's with a lot, all these people who have, you know, very severe mental illnesses. And he's, and he's breaking all the rules. Randall P. McMurphy is, you know, Jack Nicholson's character. And as a result of one of the rules that he breaks, uh, Nurse Ratchet says, no, no TV. You know, TV for a week or whatever it is. Well, so there's one TV in the common area and it's a little, you know, black and white TV, and it's turned off, and nobody can touch it. And then Randall McMurphy realizes that the World Series is on. That's why I think about this every year at this time. And he said, and he said, but Nurse Ratchet, like, we want to watch the World Series. The World Series is on. We want to watch the World Series. And Nurse Ratchet, who is really the embodiment of law and, and not grace, she's not hearing it at all. But she does agree, like, if you can get the majority vote among your, you know, your, your fellow uh, patients here, then we'll turn on the World Series. And he goes from person to person and he just can't get anybody to, he just can't get the majority vote. And so, but, but he just won't let it go. He just, go, he just pleads and pleads and pleads. And finally, after Nurse Ratchet says, he finally gets the, the, the deciding vote, 9-8. But Nurse Ratchet says, well, the voting was closed. So she won't, turn, she won't turn it on. So he sits down in this chair. There's a little black and white TV in front of him. And he starts actually doing play-by-play as if the World Series is on. It's not on. So everybody sort of gathers. It's an incredible, incredible scene. He won't let it go. He will not let it go. Well, in the same way, Jesus will not let go your spiritual success. He won't let it go. Paul says that he is indeed interceding for us. He is praying nonstop for you. In your weakest moments, he is pleading with God to give you strength. In your moments of doubt, he is appealing to God the Father to give you assurance. When you sin, when I sin, he is saying to the Father, that one is mine. That one has been purchased at great cost. A couple of weeks ago, we we saw that the Holy Spirit is praying for us, interceding with groanings inutterable. Well, now we read that Christ is praying for us. So two out of three persons of the Trinity are praying for us and the Father is listening. But what about those really, really dark moments? What about those moments when it just seems like God is nowhere to be found? 
I mean, what about those moments when it just seems like everything is against us and God doesn't even care? It's one of those Psalm 44 moments. You know, when everything around us is crumbling, our hopes have been dashed, and it seems like God is against us. Look at verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, this is Psalm 44, Paul's quoting Psalm 44. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, the love of Christ, by the way, is the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So it's fair to talk about, we can accurately say we're talking about the love of God as well as we can say the love of Christ. Um, this is about God's love for us in Christ, Christ's love for us. The word Paul uses here for separate has to do with relational separation. It has to do with being torn away from someone who loves us. If you pay any attention to the persecuted church around the world, you've seen images of families being ripped apart because uh, children being taken from parents because parents have said, no, we confess Christ as Lord. This is, there's more persecution. There are more governments hostile toward the Christian faith now than at any point in all of history. And you look at what's happening. This, this very thing is happening in Nigeria right now today. Children are being torn away from their parents because their parents refuse to deny Christ as Lord. We see this in, in many countries. We see it in Sudan we see it in, uh, in, in places in some of the countries in the upper half of Africa. We see it in Southeast Asia. And so these, these parents, and, parents and children are being separated. Well, I mean, what could be a more gruesome or gut-wrenching image than that? To see a child taken away from his parents. That's the kind of separation that Paul's talking about here. It is inherently relational. And what Paul is asking is who, or, or more broadly, what, under what circumstances will we Christians be torn away from the love of God? And the answer is, there are none. There are no circumstances, and there are no, there are no enemies who can actually take us from God's love. He talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword. And these are, these are items that are, these are not intended to be evaluated in detail, you know, a sermon on each one of these things. That's not the point. I suppose say, what, what types of tribulations? Um, this is a list meant to communicate in an all-inclusive manner. There is nothing in all of life that could separate you, if you are in Christ, from God's love for you. There's nothing in all the world, no circumstance even imaginable, that could tear you apart, that could separate God's elect, from God's love for them. So I mentioned, he quotes, Paul quotes Psalm 44 as a way to describe his suffering and the suffering of believers. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you read the rest of that Psalm, 
Paul will actually, very in a way that's almost uncomfortable, say to God, where are you right now? I mean, why have you turned your face against us? I'm praying, I'm crying out to you, but you're nowhere to be found. There will be times, and, and maybe, I hope this is not the case, maybe this is what you're going through right now in your life, there will be times when we feel like the psalmist and we say, God, where are you? Why have you hidden yourself from me? Why are you nowhere to be found? Why are you ignoring my misery and my oppression? But here's the thing, God's not forgotten. God's not forgotten for a second. These trials are not evidence of God's love disappeared, but just part of what it means to live in a broken, sin-cursed, painful world. And yet, in all of these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. In other words, we are, victor we are victorious through him who loved us. But why does Paul say we're more than conquerors through him who loved us? Past tense. Did God like, really love us at one point and then now it's not so much? No, Paul's talking about when he says to him who loved us, he's talking about a particular demonstration of love. He's talking about a particular event where that love was on full display. It's what the psalmist in Psalm 44 looked forward to. And it's what Paul, the church at Rome, and we look back on. That, of course, is the coming and the suffering of the Redeemer that God would send. So after that, Paul presents another series of would-be threats we might fear. He presents them in a pair of opposites. Paul says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, uh, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And as I said... The point here is not to look at, to analyze each one of these things for some sort of, you know, hidden meaning. What does Paul mean by things present? What does he mean by things to come? I read one uh, essay, it didn't take me too long to ditch it, but I read one essay by a guy who said, when he, he the, the whole point of the essay was, when Paul says neither height nor depth in Romans 8, 39, are these astrological terms? Uh, now that's, that's an adventure and missing the point for sure. That's not what he's getting at here. I love what Douglas scholar, or scholar Douglas Moo writes. We must avoid introducing more precision in Paul's choice of terms than his rhetorical purpose would justify. In other words, what Paul's saying is don't worry about it. There's nothing, nothing imagined, nothing you can come up with, nothing you can go through, nothing anybody can throw at you, nothing any enemy can put you through. There's nothing in all the world that can ever separate the elect from God's love for them. It just absolutely cannot and will not happen. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's nothing that can separate God's love for his own. In fact, Paul says, neither death nor life could separate us. That means not even our own living can separate us from God's love. The elect, verse 29, are so secure in God's hand that they can't even separate themselves from God's love because God won't allow it. One thing we talked about a few weeks ago is this issue of assurance, and many of us wonder how can I be sure that I'll remain faithful till the end? How can I know that I'll actually stay a Christian till the end? And of course, 
that question, you know, it's, it, the agony is added to it when we see people that we know and love, people that at one point, they're just on fire for the things of the Lord, and now they want nothing to do with God's church, they want nothing to do with the Lord, and that just burdens us. And then we see celebrity after celebrity and musician and pastor and, and turning their backs and denouncing their faith. And we say, how can I know that I won't do the same? How can I know that I'll make it until the end? In verse 35 and following, Paul gives Christians the, the ultimate reason for confidence. It won't be because of their education. It won't be because of their training. It won't even be because of their own effort or willpower. It will be because of something else. It'll be because of God's sovereignty over all that exists, including the salvation of his own people. Paul says in Philippians 1, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, you can't even separate yourself from God's love because your salvation is not in your hands, but in the hands of a sovereign and loving Father who will continually draw you back to himself by his loving care. Here's our final point. Out of love, God safeguards our salvation against all threats. He saves us even from ourselves. There's nothing you will go through that could possibly tear you away from God's love. There's no person in your life or, so, or any circumstance on the horizon. There's no one who could ever jeopardize your salvation, or your standing with your heavenly Father. There's not even a doubt that could ever creep into your own mind that would derail you or lead you away from the Father. Now, of course, the question that always arises is, and I alluded to it a couple of minutes ago, well, what about all those people? I mean, what about all those people who made professions of faith and seemed to be walking with the Lord, and now they want nothing to do with God? Well, we have to conclude either one of two things. Either one, God will, in his perfect timing, bring them back to himself. He will bring about the right sort of loving discipline to bring them back to himself. And I've seen this countless times over the years, and I'm sure you have too. Or the only, the only other right conclusion, according to the, the overall witness of Scripture, is that they weren't really trusting in Jesus to begin with. They really never knew the Lord to begin with. The Puritans taught about salvation this way. They said, if you have it, you can never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. Now, there are people who indeed fall away and hypocrites who seem to show all the signs of faith, but not true believers, not those who've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, have gone through that great chain of salvation that Pastor Adam talked about last week. They will never ultimately and totally fall away because God will not allow it. He will not allow his own to be lost. As we're going to sing in just a minute, he will hold us fast. When I fear my faith will fail, we don't say, I'm just going to hold on stronger. 
No, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, when Satan would have all of his minions against me, doesn't say when the tempter would prevail, I'm just gonna bear down even harder, harder and make sure of it. No, he will hold me fast. If you are in Christ this morning, there's nothing that anyone can ever do, not even yourself, to put you out of the Father's love. But if you're here this morning, you've not put your faith in Christ, then you are not actually loved by the Father in a familial sense as a child. You actually are an enemy of God. But it doesn't have to be that way. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin, your self-righteousness, your self-salvation project, whatever it is, your, your staunch independence. Turn from your sin. Believe on Jesus that he was a real man, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life, obeying God in every way. Died on a cross, was raised again. And as Martin Luther, I started with Martin Luther, I'll end with Martin Luther. Luther said it's not enough just to believe that Christ died on a cross. It's not even enough just to believe that Christ died for sin. We have to believe that Christ died for my sin. It was my sin that put him there. And when you do, when you trust in Christ, you will, you will experience a sort of forgiveness and a renewal. You'll be made new and you'll be brought into a secure position before the Lord that no one can ever steal you away from. Let's pray.